We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 91. I had the wonderful privilege of interviewing our guest today, who is both a brain scientist and a horsewoman. She recently wrote a book called Horse Brain, Human Brain, which is an amazing book that sheds some light on how horses learn, think, perceive information, and perform, and explains how to work with the horse's brain instead of against it, which we don't always mean to do, but in all reality, do quite often. This book is so eye-opening and every equestrian should read it. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest, Dr. Janet Jones. I'm so excited that you're on. I cannot wait to get into the nitty gritties of your book, but I would first love to take a step back and see how you first got into the equestrian world. Okay. I grew up in a small town that was surrounded by horse and cattle ranches. Okay. So everybody had horses and you just, you couldn't grow up in this area without being around horses. By the time I was seven, I was taking lessons and really working hard at my riding. And by the time I was 13, I was riding and showing other people's horses for them. And so that really, I I always had a lot of experience with riding multiple horses. And I think that helped me tremendously to get a better understanding of horses in general, rather than just one specific horse. Sure. And then I had a strange high school experience. Back when I was in high school, I I was in the baby boom generation. And in the area where I lived, the growth rate was so high that there weren't enough schools for all of the high school aged kids. Wow. And so we, our high schools in that area went to what they called double sections. And basically what that meant was that high school ran two sessions a day and you were either in the 6 a.m. to noon session for school or you were in noon to 6 p.m. session for school. I ended up in the morning session. And what that meant was that by noon, school was out. And I was able to go to the barn and ride for the rest of the day and the evening. And that gave me a lot of time for riding. In addition to that, I finished high school really early. So I was only 15 years old when I finished high school. And I was living at the barn by then. I rode, oh, usually eight or 10 horses a day for many years. And then I gave beginning lessons. And this was a training stable that was really large. We had we had room for about 80 horses, but I think most of the time there were probably 60 or 70 horses there, living there on the premises. And they were a huge variety of horses, all different ages. We had a lot of young horses off the track, uh, two and three-year-olds. And we had a number of different types of breeds of horses. We had a Western program, a hunter-jumper program. These horses had a lot of different goals. So some of them were 
top level show horses and others were just grade horses whose owners usually had problems <laughs> with mm-hmm. them. <laughs> and, and so of course they sent them to us. <laughs> right. And wow. so there was a, a lot of variety and a lot of things that had to be done. I was involved with, with all of that from the very beginning. I was involved with veterinary care and farrier work and clipping, restraining, trailer loading, showing, we feeding, you know, all different types mm-hmm. of aspects of feeding and first aid, keeping all of these horses sound and healthy, but also well-trained and well-exercised. So I really got at a very early age a full understanding of the immense responsibility that goes with horses. Sure. Um, even just one, let alone 60. Mm-hmm. And, and I got a really good understanding and a, and a very good foundation in all aspects of training and care of horses. And so I, I really believe that that it was something that helped me tremendously. And I think I was very fortunate to be able to develop that foundation when I was very young. Got it. So did all of that experience make you want to continue maybe a professional career in the equestrian industry? Were you always interested in science? What what did that look like for you? Well, I was at that time, I was definitely planning on a professional career in the industry. Mm-hmm. And at one point, because of, you know, trainers changing and barns moving, and you know how that is, there's mm-hmm. always some flux in, in terms of the different barns. At one point, I had the opportunity to take on some of my own trainer's hunter-jumper line. And there would have been about mm, 15 or 16 horses in that line. And I guess about 12 students. And that was the point. It was really interesting looking back on it. That was the point where I had the opportunity to step right into a training program with horses that I already knew and clients that I knew, students that I knew. It was a really great opportunity for me. But I was 19 years old. Hmm. I didn't have the confidence to do that. I wasn't sure if I really could do that. And I didn't have the financial support to do it. Although I had lots of support and encouragement from my trainers and other trainers in the area to, to go ahead and do that. So I've always looked back on that and thought, I really wish that I had taken advantage of that opportunity Hmm. at that time. Even if it hadn't worked out in the long run, I think it would have been a really great chance for me um, to do that. And they gave me that chance, but I was just a little too young to to understand what a great opportunity it was and a little too young to have the confidence to do it. Yeah. So so I stayed with my trainers and I, and I continued to work with them and for them and continued to live at the barn and and we changed our program a little bit. We did a little more uh, a lot more on the quarter horse circuit and less of the hunter jumpers okay. for that period of time, which was also good for me. So I ended up in a, you know, a good way one way or another. <laughs> 
Amazing. Yeah. So at this point, were you thinking about going back to school? Were you content with what you were doing at the barn? What What was your next step after that? Yeah, I was content with what I was doing at the barn. I was not planning to go on in my schooling. And you had asked a minute ago whether I was always interested in science or mm-hmm. brain science in, in particular. And I wasn't. I was a big reader. I read really widely. I was interested in lots of different things. But, you know, like so many people that age, horses had completely captured my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, as they usually do. <laughs> as they do. I'm, sh- I'm sure that you know that feeling. And I'm sure that all of your listeners know that feeling. Totally. During this period of time, I had a a riding accident, and that resulted in a head injury that created bouts of amnesia. Hmm. And these were temporary, it was temporary amnesia, but it would last anywhere from maybe two hours at a time to up to a couple of days at a time. And that's what led me to my interest in brain science, because these bouts of amnesia were, amnesia is a really curious kind of situation. You basically are completely unconscious of your actions and behaviors and words. And yet you are working in the world and doing everything that you would normally be doing. So basically what would happen is that at any given moment, I would suddenly become aware of my surroundings and myself and the other people around me. And I would realize that I had no idea how I got to that place or that situation. I didn't have any memory of walking there or tacking Mm. that horse up or anything. That must have been so scary. It was scary. It was scary, but it was, but it really made me very, very curious as to how is it possible for for a person to function in their lives in a way that seems normal to everyone around them? No, Mm -hmm. No one understood. No one realized that I was having these bouts of amnesia, except that every now and then I would suddenly perk up and say, oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) And they'd all kind of look at me like, what do you mean? Hi, you've been here. (laughs) (laughs) You've been here all along. And And then I would ask them, I would ask my friends, you know, what have I been doing all day. And they'd explain, oh, you rode this horse and that horse and the next horse. No and way. you gave two lessons and you did this and that and you ate lunch. And then a few minutes ago, we were all standing here and all of a sudden you said hi. <gasps> so, wow. um, yeah. So, so these bouts of amnesia lasted for a couple of years. And I became so curious about them that I started reading about brain science just on my own. Mm. I just you know, found books. I got books at the library. I bought books. And I just looked into everything I could to try to figure out how that could happen. And I think one reason probably that I'm in brain science today and and have made a career out of that is that nobody really knew the answer to my question back then. And we still don't know fully the answer to that question. If I had looked in the books and immediately found an answer, I probably would have just been satisfied 
at that point and said, oh, okay, that's what's going on. And, and soon these will probably go away. And gee whiz, maybe it would be a good idea for me to go see a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But the books couldn't give me the answers. And so I continued to just obsessively pursue this question in my mind. And so eventually the bouts of amnesia went away. I did go to college, but later in my life. And so I was in my mid twenties before I went to college and I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. And then, and then I went to graduate school and I got a master's degree and a PhD um, in brain science and went on in kind of a standard academic career. And I taught as a professor for 23 years. And primarily the courses I taught were, had to do with human brains. I taught perception, language, memory, yeah. <laughs> lots of memory, wow. and thought and reasoning and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, all of the kind of perception and cognition aspects of normal everyday living. So basically, I was always really interested in just normal brains. How does the normal brain work? And how does it do all of these things that we take for granted all the time? Wow. What You said you didn't really get a lot of answers from books. or Were, were you able to get any sort of clarity from doctors when you went to go find out what was going on with your amnesia? No, because really, at that period of time, no one had the answers. So the research hadn't been done. The the neurologists really didn't know how to answer my question. Hmm. And even today, there's still a tremendous question in in brain science as to consciousness. How does consciousness work? And why and exactly how do we retain consciousness of the things that have happened in our lives? So we know a lot more about memory now. We know how memories are formed. We know how those memories are consolidated. And I know now that many of the problems that I had 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 to have been caused by damage to the hippocampus Mm. in my brain, which is the area that uh, helps us form memories of events. And that's deep down inside the brain. And so some of that is known now, but there are still a lot of questions about how consciousness works. That's one of the next frontiers in brain science is going to be consciousness. Thanks to our sponsor, Trafalgar Square Books, we have a plethora of equestrian literature to choose from over at horseandriderbooks.com. Whether you're looking to fine-tune your riding or learn a new training technique, read an equestrian novel, or learn about neuroscience of horsemanship like we are right now with Janet Jones, you can find a book that suits your needs over at horseandriderbooks.com. Trafalgar Square Books does an amazing job of finding equestrian authors to really find a perfect book for you, no matter what you are learning or wanting to accomplish in your reading. So make sure you head over to horseandriderbooks.com and take a look at their hundreds of equestrian books. I don't know about you, but once you take a look, you are going to want to go through all of the collection. So thank you so much, Trafalgar Square Books. All right, let's head back to the episode. 
So as you were developing all of this knowledge, um, going to school and then teaching, how did you make your way back into looking at back at horses again and kind of finding that correlation between human brain and the horse brain? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> over the years, I just I continued with my interests in both of these areas, horses and brains. And after many decades, I was just steeped in horses and brains. And I could see that most riders, even excellent riders, were often, without realizing it, they were riding against the horse's brain rather than with it. Hmm. So... They were expecting their horses to do things that would be extremely difficult for an equine brain to understand or produce. And I could see that in some cases there would be other ways of asking that horse to do what the rider wanted that would actually work with the horse's brain and make the whole process much more natural for the horse. Yeah. Could you give me an example? Yes. I have several examples <laughs> of that kind Perfect. of thing. One example that's very simple has to do with vision. When a horse is afraid of something, many of us are taught to ride the horse directly toward that item and require the horse to face the item and get closer and closer and closer to it. And you know how we all see that kind of when people get into this kind of thing, there's usually that that back and forth thing where the horse is really trying to turn left or turn right Mm -hmm. to get away. And the rider is constantly bumping the reins and bumping the horse's side to correct them and get them back to the straight line. Well, that works completely against the horse's brain and it works completely against the horse's vision. Hmm. So we do that because our eyes are positioned in the front of our heads and our focus is best at the front of our heads. So we can see a scary item best if we look right straight at it and get fairly close to it. That's the worst possible position for a horse. True. A horse has his eyes over on the sides of his head. The closer he gets to an item, the more it disappears. If it's low, below the level of, say, his mouth, or even a little bit higher than that, it completely disappears even before he has gotten up really close to it. So basically, what we're asking a horse to do right there is to approach a scary object that is going to increasingly disappear the closer the horse gets to it. Well, if you did that with me, you know, if you threw a spider at me or something, Mm -hmm. a a big tarantula at me, the last thing I want to do is have that tarantula in a position where I can't see it. Yeah, like in your blind spot. Exactly. Yeah. We don't want that tarantula over there. We want the tarantula right in front of our faces where we can see it. And when we're riding a horse, we assume that's where he wants it. But if you learn about horse equine vision and the horse's brain, you can see right away that 
that's not where the horse can see the scary object. And so we just alter our techniques to work with the horse's brain by allowing the horse to see these objects from the side and by allowing the horse to approach the object in a much more oblique way rather than that direct frontal approach. Mm-hmm. And it works mm-hmm. much, much better. Yeah, I'm even and thinking of that. I'm, yeah, even, you, I'm even thinking of that with like in the morning when we take our horses into the ring to show them jumps, uh, like before they were, you know, show later that day. And yes. you see everyone taking a horse, you know, perpendicular, right. like head on to a jump. Yes. It makes a lot more sense to probably bring them to the side and, and with some space in between the jump yes. um, so yes. that they can really get a good look at it. Yes. And another thing that helps is if you're going to approach the jump frontally, once the horse has already become accustomed to it from the side, that you don't, if you walk up so close to it, that the, you know, the horse's nose is almost right on the jump. Mm -hmm. You can't see it there. Yeah. So yeah, there's, so that's just a really kind of basic example, but it's one that everybody usually recognizes right away and we've all seen this this little dance that we do Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to get our horses to go up to an object that they're afraid of so basically I started to really experiment with this general idea in my horse training business in terms of what were other sorts of things that that caused us to ride against the horse's brain that were also things that we could develop techniques that would be different, that would work better for the horse. And in the process of experimenting with all that, I guess at first I was thinking that it was really important for horse people to understand the horse's brain. And it is. And of course, that's the basis of a large part of my book. But as I experimented with it, I began to realize there isn't really enough to understand the horse's brain. We also have to understand how the human brain interacts with the horse's brain. Mm -hmm. Because it's a mutual experience when we're working. We are actually communicating with our horses brain to brain. And that's a really special, rare opportunity that we have a prey animal and a predator communicating via their brains on a moment to moment basis and constantly telling each other, giving each other feedback with our bodies as to what we what the human is asking for, what the horse is trying to do, how the human responds to that, how the horse in turn responds to that next thing. This is just a constant interaction. So at that point, I really began emphasizing the interaction when I was teaching riding and when I was training horses, and I found it to be successful. And so at that point, I began writing articles for Equus Magazine. And they were wonderful. They were just, they still are. Um, The people at Equus Magazine are extremely supportive and they were really taken with these ideas. And so I've written about 20 articles for them, most of which are on the neuroscience of horsemanship. And I got a lot of feedback from readers on those articles. And that is what really pushed me then toward the idea that, yeah, 
people want to know more about this and it will help a lot of horses if people know about it. And so I decided at that point to go ahead and write this book, Horse Brain, Human Brain. Amazing. Besides all of that information, what kind of research did you need to gather in order to create? I mean, you were already writing articles, but a book is, you know, quite a step up as far as how much content you are delivering. What kind of research were you doing? So there was all kinds of research that went into this. And primarily, I guess I would say there was a lot of research in medical science and neurology because I was having to use both the human brain and the horse brain. There was a lot of cognitive science for the human brain. I looked at a lot of the veterinary literature and talked to a number of people who specialize in veterinary neurology and discovered, interestingly, there aren't too many of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the ones there, there are, are very generous, and scientists in general are very generous with their knowledge, and there were a lot of people that answered questions for me and that uh, pointed me to more literature. And then I also looked uh, in a lot of detail at equine science to help pull all of these together. The lucky thing is that These are subjects that I've been studying and teaching all my life. So they're natural to me. I know that literature in general. I know how to find those kinds of things. And that helped me tremendously. Another interesting little wrinkle with all of this is that much of the research on horse brains is extremely new. So just to give you an example, the first really precise brain image on a horse wasn't published until 2019. No way. Yeah. Wow. So there's just, you know, horses are difficult to work with in that kind of thing. You can't just put a horse in an MRI machine and say, explain. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Turn it on. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so a lot of the research in this book is just really brand new and I'm excited to bring it to people's attention and 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 really hopeful that it will help a lot of horses. I think that I think that this idea of the interaction between the two brains is likely to really increase the mental and physical welfare of our horses. Um, and especially horses who are in training, horses who are athletes and they're working hard and they're, a lot of it is expected of them. And I think that when we expect a lot from an animal, we have a responsibility to learn as much as we can to help that animal. And so horses are captive in a human world and we need to do everything we can to make sure that they're comfortable in that world, that they understand that world, that they have some knowledge as to how they're expected to behave. And the more that we can do that, the better for the horse. And and in turn, the better for the horse people. It's safer for us to work with horses when we understand more about how they think. Totally. Without giving too much away from the book, can you tell me a little bit about the similarities you found in our in our two brains? And then we've obviously touched on how they are different, but are, were there some similarities you found from like a neurological standpoint? 
there are some similarities. Horses and humans, of course, are mammals and brains of mammals tend to operate in much the same way when it when you get down to the basic levels of physiology so horses have neurons just like humans do and horse neurons work very much the same way that human neurons work so when you really get down to the the real nuts and bolts of how the brains work. Um, we still have neural activation. We still have brains creating chemicals that are used to make our bodies function and to make our brains function. Okay. So most of those kinds of really basic aspects of anatomy and physiology are very similar between human and horse brains. But as soon as we get into structures in the brains, then we start seeing differences. One of the biggest differences, of course, is that the horse brain doesn't have a prefrontal cortex mm. like the human brain does. And that's the area that um, is responsible for planning, forethought, goal setting, strategizing, mm. all that kind of stuff, judgment. So at that point, we begin to really get into a lot of differences. And I think that my book probably emphasizes the differences more than the similarities because the differences are most important to us in terms of altering our training methods and our riding methods so that we can work with a horse. Totally. One thing that people often really don't recognize, or maybe we just don't think about it too often, is that the horse doesn't see, hear, or smell the world the same way we do. Hmm. So when you think about that, you, you begin to realize, huh, the world looks and sounds and smells completely different. And when you ride down to a jump or when you negotiate a new trail on a horse, the, the horse doesn't see what you see. And you definitely don't smell what he smells. Hmm. How do so, we how do we know that? Like what kind of research is out there? I mean, is it just based on the structure of the horse's senses? That's both. always been interesting to me. Yes, that's a really good question. And the answer is really that that we try to get converging evidence from a variety of different angles. And so one area of this has to do with the sensory organs. If you look at the horse brain, you see that the horse brain is has got tons of neural real estate devoted to smell. When you look at a human brain, you see tons of neural real estate. About a third of the human brain is devoted to vision. Nowhere near that much is devoted to vision in the horse. And for smell, we hardly have, you know, we, we have compared to a horse or a dog, we have tiny, tiny little bit of a cortex devoted to uh, the ability to smell. One of the really interesting things I learned during the process of writing this book is that there's evidence now that horses have about the same amount of olfactory receptors. And by that, I just mean the cells that pick up different odors in the world. Horses have olfactory receptors and olfactory cortex that is similar to the level of a hunting dog. Hmm. Most people don't realize that horses smell that much and that they rely on their sense of smell wow. that much. So we often are thinking that 
you know, the, the horse tends to smell about the same way we do, but maybe a little bit better. And in fact, that's not the case. Horses just, their ability to smell is vastly greater than ours and much more complex. Another thing a lot of people don't realize is that we have one organ for the sense of smell, our noses. Horses have two organs and they work in different ways for the way they smell. So they get more than double the ability to smell because they have these two completely different brain systems that are working on analyzing the odors in the environment. And so the book, um, there's a whole chapter in the book on smell that talks about all of the information that horses pick up from smell. And it's really pretty amazing when you when you get into it to see what they are able to do. Totally. I mean, even just hearing you talk about it and how our brain and our horse's brain is so different. It like, it honestly like makes me emotional to think about how we still can, we find a way to communicate and how willing horses are to try to figure out what we are asking them to do in a clear way. And it makes, it's just as such great reminder to have, you know, motivation to really learn and understand our horse and making sure that what we are, how we are asking them to do something comes across as clearly to them as possible. Yes, that's exactly the message that I hope that people are getting from, from this kind of way of looking at horsemanship. And I think that that is just so true that horses, and as you learn more about the horse brain and the interaction between horse and human brains, you realize just how generous horses are, that they are willing to try to do things that we are asking them to do in all the wrong ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't, you know, we're not even aware of that. I mean, I'm not suggesting that anyone is going out there and purposely doing things in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It's just that we haven't really considered how their brains work. And once we do, then we can really begin to see, oh, okay, his brain picks this up in this way. So if I just alter my technique a little bit, it's going to make it a lot easier for this horse to learn what I'm asking. And it's going to make it much easier for this horse to trust me. And I think a lot comes down to the bond between horses and humans and and the nature of the trust between the two species. So we have the capacity to alter that a lot and to improve it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I am so excited to read your book, Horse Brain, Human Brain. You've totally convinced me and I am I really, really want to see how I can incorporate that in my training too and, and how I can, because I mean, every horse has its, you know, thing or, and, or, you know, like struggle or something that sure. uh, we need to work on. And yeah. it's such a great kind of mindset shift to be like, you know what, maybe, maybe it's not the horse horse's problem. Maybe it's something that yeah. I'm doing that he's not fully, he or she is not like fully understanding and being able to read horse brain, human brain and understand these differences, I think is going to be a game changer for a lot of people. So we can head over to horseandriderbooks.com. That's the Trafalgar Square website for, there's a ton of different books on there. I was just looking at it the other day and there's so many yeah. different books. So you can pick up your book over there. Otherwise, where, 
where, where is the best place for people to reach you and, and more of that of what you're doing? My website is Janet hyphen jones.com. So that's J A N E T hyphen J O N E S.com. And they can learn more there. I'm also on Facebook under Janet Jones horse brains. And the book will also be available. I think beginning, it was supposed to be June 30th, but it looks like it's been pushed now to July 3rd. So in a couple of days, uh, the book will also be available um, through all of the online book retailers and physical bookstores. So it will be widely available here in a couple of days. Amazing. So, so exciting. Well, Janet, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. You have so much knowledge in in an area where a lot of us would love to learn more on. So I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.